The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM, episode 13, the first of our new series. And so we have a very special guest, without doubt one of the most recognisable names in wine, Oz Clark, OBE. He started his career as an actor, but wine became his stage, and he was one of the very first to take English and Welsh wine seriously. He's now written a book about it. We'll hear why he's still so excited about the British wine scene. And the theme is unashamedly domestic today, nothing to do with the fact that we can't go anywhere. Of all the drinks in the world, gin is one of those most closely associated with the UK, William Lowe is a master distiller and also a master of wine. His academic verve is actually quite frightening, uh, but he's absolutely fascinating as well. Uh, He started distilling to make deliberate mistakes. He's made gin from ants and he's obsessed with seasonality. We'll find out why. Plus, we have a brilliant batch of medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Head out of the drinks bubble and onto the street and ask someone to name a famous figure from the world of wine, and the chances are the name Oz Clark will trip off the tongue. A septuagenarian, his love of wine began at university, but it wasn't until the early 1980s that he went from the world of acting to the world of wine. He has a famously good voice, he can still belt out a song, but it's his nose and palate for which he's now celebrated the world over. Awarded an OBE last year for his services to wine, he's been banging the drum about English and Welsh wine for well over a decade. So Oz, welcome to uh, The Drinking Hour. It's uh, a huge uh, pleasure to, to chat to you here, and I've really enjoyed the book. So someone might say to you, what took you so long? What took me so long to write the mm, book? For the book, I yeah. Think, I think actually it was because I've been banging on English wine for at least 20, 25 years. Ever, I mean, I've, I've been gently supporting it ever ever since I was an actor because, I, you know, I used to get invited down to things like the, the Kent and Wieldlands um, tasting competition and they would be so incredibly grateful that anyone had come down from London to taste there. And you got, you got fated like a king um, and you'd find half a dozen wines which are quite nice and you wander back up to London thinking well it was a jolly nice day in the countryside but um, it, the wines were were unambitious and I think that what what got got me going was to find some ambition and the, the ambition was night timber um, until night timber came along there were some nice wines being made um, but nobody really had the confidence to say, I want to make a world beater here until good old Sandy and Stuart Moss turned up from Chicago, because presumably you don't turn up in Sussex from Chicago trying to make something quite nice. Uh, you turn up and say, try to say something, I want to make the best in the world. That's what people from Chicago do. Um, and from that moment on, 
I realised that there was an absolutely massive potential here. But I, you know, I was also discovering Australia and New Zealand and South Africa and Chile and and Argentina and California and France and Italy. There's so much to discover. That period, the end of the 90s into the noughties, um, was a fabulous time to tear about the place, discovering loads of stuff. I mean, Italy for a start. Italy to me wasn't really getting getting its act together until the noughties. I, I to, to be honest, in my mind, until uh, 10 years ago. Um, mm. That that was an enormous subject I needed to know more about. Portugal was only getting its act together. That was a subject I needed to know. Spain is transformed in the last 10 or 15 years. I think the point is I was too busy with lots of other stuff. Um, I kept looking at, at, at England. I kept supporting it. I kept saying, hey, fellas, this is wonderful, and then moved on. And I think it was the 2018 vintage. Um, not No, I take that back. The 2018 year in Britain the heat, the warmth, the summer, the endless days when the sun never seemed to set. The next morning up it came again and it went down and up it came again. So that all over Britain, people began to believe in, in, in climate change, the positive side of climate change for, for uh, the vineyards of this country. And I just thought this could be one of those great vintages. Um, it's, it's, I've got to get a book written. Um, a, a book which I've been sort of wondering and wondering about for a long time. I've got to do it now. So that, I think, um, that that magical year when we made more wine than ever before, then we had more um, sunshine and heat than ever before, when the grapes were riper than ever before, when there were more experts also than ever before, when there were more um, vineyards which had been planted five, six, seven, eight years ago, just beginning to say, hey, this is what we can do. And, and I just thought, no one's written this kind of book for the general public. We, we need one. We need to get a book out there which will persuade people to go to their local vineyard and say, hello, I hear you make wine. I didn't know that. Um, can I try it? Oh, that was nice. I'll buy a bottle. I might come back next week and buy another one. I might come back at the weekend and buy six. In other words, people, and also, um, it sounds silly to say this, but Brexit, Brexit, uh, I realised that with Brexit, whether we believe in it or not, it's happened. And if it's mm. happened, you've got to bloody deal with it. Um, and there's no much, you know, I could go moaning about the place for the next next 10 years. It won't do me any good. It won't do England any good. It, Brexit's happened. Um, so we've got to deal with it. And one of the ways we deal with it is being proud of what we've got in this, in this country. Um, it's funny. You look at the, look at the Welsh. The Wel Welsh wine industry is a tiny little industry, but they're very proud. They are. Um, yeah. They're a delight to work with. Um, and I was thinking, okay, Brexit, we need to be proud. Brexit, we need to look after our own. We need to say, okay, this is a time when we have to say what's happening in our country. And it's the same with cheese and with beer and with cider and with, with, whether, with whether you've got a local butcher and whether you've got a local greengrocer and all that other kind of thing. We've got to support ourselves. And eventually um, I, I thought time for a book, time for a book to persuade people to tell them what's happening. Um, mm -hmm. and then persuade people to take it seriously and enjoy it. Well, it is very persuasive as a book. It really is, um, because you're such an evangelist for wine more generally, but particularly for the, the wines of England and, 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 and Wales. And of course, I want to say British wine, but um, actually it took me a, a long time to realise that British wine is a bit of a problem as a term, isn't it? Because it is something else. For those who don't know, just, just briefly explain what British wine actually means. 
I think for the new generation, it won't be a problem um, because British wine, in legal terms, and I believe, by the way, this is about to end, but in legal terms, it was meant, it meant that, that you could bring in grape must and squashed out old raisins and God knows what and prunes and, and dates and anything that fermented from abroad. And in places like Kingston-upon-Thames in, in, in England, you could squirt and squeeze that into some kind of alcoholic liquid and then you threw in some some pure alcohol and made it into what used to be called British sherry or British port or British anything and it was a British wine was a term for for British manufactured fortified wines um, and uh, technically uh, things like um, Buckfast would be a British wine things like uh, El Dorado and Lanlick up in Glasgow would have been British wines now that that market means nothing to to a millennial means nothing to a generation x so you know someone age 40 or 50 and you're or 30 or 20 you say what is British wine they'd say wine made in Britain so I, th I yeah. think that that I, I don't think that's going to be a, a problem in the future. In fact, uh, I've I've just given up talking about it. Um, uh, British wine to me is going to mean wine made in England, Wales, and of course Scotland because it's going to happen. Um, they're already yeah. clearing. There's a, a there's a vineyard in Fife. Uh, there was an attempt at a vineyard in Dumfriesshire, for goodness sake. Um, they're clearing some land near Glasgow. Uh, I think it's a bit um, a bit precipitate. I'd leave it another year or two, but you know I've had some already. You know, you you've probably had you know those Delane wines from from Gateshead. Have you tried them? No, I haven't. But I was amazed. You've got a map in I've the book. Wines from, I've tried wines from the other side of Hadrian's Wall. Um, <laughs> it's ha it's happening. It, it's it's happening. Wines are being made. Beautiful wines are being made in Derbyshire. Last Saturday saw the start of the Yorkshire Wine Trail. Yorkshire now has a wine trail. It's incredible. It's, it's happening. It's, the dots it's, on your map are incredible, incredible, actually. Yorkshire, Yorkshire wines are really nice. And they get medals at the at the Wine GB and they get medals at the International Wine Competition. Uh, they're, they're really pleasant wines. And good God, I used to I used to make jokes about Yorkshire because you have to, you know. If, you know, What's the point of having Yorkshire if you can't make jokes about it? Um, <laughs> and so I used to say, oh, yes, I can. They used to do this when I used to go up to Yorkshire Television and all these people. They'd always make me blind taste. And they'd say, oh, we'll get him this time. He won't get Get this one and, and they'd give me a sort of a, a cut glass decanter of this sort of liquid and i'd and i'd say that it'll be that bloody leventhorpe from leeds and of course i'd smell it and it smelt of rust and an old machinery and sort of the detritus of coal of coal mine slag and i'd say oh good gracious this is very interesting very mineral very um northern must be somewhere like yorkshire and they would they'd, they'd say the bloke's a genius he's a bloody genius i thought i'm not a genius i'm just not a fathead because it's perfectly obvious you Given me eleven here, eleven thought like you did last year and like you did the year before, but <laughs> nowadays, Leventhorpe from Castleford, you know rugby league Castleford is a really nice glass of wine and has been for the last ten or fifteen years. Uh, and Yorkshire now making making very nice wines out in the Humber, making very nice wines up but north of of Hull on the Hull River up towards Beverley. 2025 vineyards. Yorkshire Incredible. does it. Derbyshire, Renishaw Hall in Derbyshire. Absolutely delicious wine. You know, that's a north facing site. North facing site in Derbyshire makes absolutely delightful wine. You talk about a kind of, in the book, about a, a, what sounds to me like a bit of an epiphany. It's what you describe as a, a, a shivering, thrilling realization 
that you were tasting something new and different. And you're talking about, I think, the mid to late 1990s. And I suspect you're talking about night timber yeah. here. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that kind of shivering, thrilling realisation? What were you tasting? It was Nightember 1992, that would have been, um, which I think was a Blanc de Blanc. Uh, and the Nightember 1993, which was the one that won the IWSC um, Sparkling Wine of the Year. And it was, uh, I've been lucky enough once or twice in my life to do this. Um, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc was an example. When I first tasted those New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs, I absolutely knew that the world of white wine was changing and wouldn't and and was changed forevermore and f for the better um i think when i tasted things like australian shirazes for the first time i was absolutely gobsmacked at the at the kind of flavors that were available in wine which i never knew about uh, in 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 europe now this time uh it was something from my own doorstep and it was when i tasted this it was night number 1992 and it had a it had an acidity quite unlike champagne acidity and it was it was you know you might say oh it's as taut as piano wire well yes but this wasn't so much as taut as piano wire it was something silvery about it, it was something shimmering um um about it as though you had the you had the ping of of a, of a piano wire and then you had the shimmering silveriness of it something running through that acidity it had it had um, the autolysis thing, the, the the yeasty thing, the creamy thing. Now this was fabulous in the, in those early night timbers because it literally was like croissant rather than brioche. People talk about brioche in champagne all the time. A, who knows what brioche tastes like nowadays? Um, but B, is it really brioche, which is not quite not quite sugarless? I think it's more like croissant. I think most people have a, a vague idea what croissants taste like. And here we had this croissant, and you had something like a lovely, lovely, um, slightly salted sort of Devon or Cornish butter and a little bit of clotted cream, maybe a little bit of, of something like, as a Kent boy, something like Kent cobs, that kind of hazelnut, Kent cobs kind of nuttiness about it. All these things wrapping together and some fruit in there as well. And, and, and the whole thing, and it had some saline. Oh, that's the salted butter for you. You know, when you get butter with, with the, the crystals of salt oh, in it. Oh, I love that. Absolutely yes. Delicious. Yes. Um, and all of this was happening and it was just building up in my mouth and it was just the the flavors you know with with sparkling wine you expect the the sort of the alcohol to head off for your brain but this time the aromas were just piling into my nasal cavity pouring into my brain and saying remember this remember this this is a really important moment in your wine life and and it was wow it's a real moment isn't it um, we know a lot about the uh, chalk, you know, the, the Paris Basin thing, the, the fact that the chalk goes under the English Channel and pops up in, in Kent and Sussex. And, and that's fairly well known and is obviously a major factor in the success of, of the wines that we're talking about. But something I didn't really appreciate until I was reading the book is clay, because I, as a gardener, a keen gardener, I tend to think of clay as a total pain in the ass, to be honest. But you make the point that actually the clay that we have in England and Wales, and, and presumably Scotland too, I don't know, is, is actually a good thing. Uh, I think it's a good thing in some places. Uh, what we have certainly discovered is that, uh, that, um, that you can make perfectly good Pinot Noir uh, or excellent Pinot Noir in this country on clay. And on the whole, when you go to someone like Burgundy, the, the heavy clay soils, they're just, they're sort of said, oh, that's Bourgogne Rouge. That's, that's just basic Appalachian stuff. You won't make anything special there. 
Um, and indeed, you may not in 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 Burgundy, because you know, as a gardener, clay's problem is it when it rains it when it when it rains it just thickens up and becomes solid. Uh, but if it's too dry and warm, it just cracks. And you and the 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 the, the, the challenge is to try and find a balance between the two. Well, at the moment, it looks to me as though we've, there are various parts of the UK, and Kent and Sussex are amongst them, where the clays have just the right, right amount of sunshine and just the right amount of moisture. And these are often London clays. Wealden clays are a bit heavier, but even so, there have been some very good Pinot Noirs off Wealden clays in, in, in Kent and Sussex. But the, the, the crucial clays in this country, the ones that have been really exciting, are over in Essex. And those are London clays. And I think the point about them is Essex is the driest part of the UK. You've got things like the Blackwater Estuary and the Crouch Estuary, which is a peninsula running out from Chelmsford between those two. Newhall have been there for 20 or 30 years. Um, and those that peninsula is now growing some of the best Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in the country on clay soils. And I went and looked at, um, at the, the sort of rain and sun and, and, uh, and, and, and warmth uh, figures over there. And what what seemed to be the point was that if clay is too dry, it cracks. If clay is too wet, it waterlogs. But at Essex, it's the driest part in England, but it's still England. So you still get just enough rain. So the moisture gets just enough into the clay to soften it all up, but it then stops. Now, if, it, if you were in Gloucestershire, it would probably keep on raining and your clay would waterlog. But in Essex, it gets just enough. So the driest part of, of England is not like the driest part of France, uh, where, be, where the clays would all crack. Here, they, I don't, they, you know, they are mingled in often with a, with a bit of limestone and gravel and this and that. But actually, over in Essex, they're pretty much clay. And it's just, it's local climate. It's the good old French terroir. And there is a terroir. For a clay terroir in Essex, which is proving itself to be fabulous for Pinot Noir. Not great dense Pinot Noirs, although in 2020 they produced one at 14.7% alcohol. Which wow, I in Essex. Yeah, but I'm sure I'll taste it sooner or later. But they're also managing and uh, to to produce things like lovely Chardonnays uh, from from vineyards like Clay Hill, which is one of the, one of the ones going down to the estuary towards the south. Um, and they also have traditionally produced beautiful Bacchus. A lot of that really good Bacchus um, has been from New Hall, and quite a lot of their vineyards face slightly north. So yeah, it's... Essex Essex has been an unsung hero in in English wine for twenty years. And I'm embarrassed to say that I hadn't even really uh, heard of the Crouch Valley until perhaps I was chatting to my former colleague, uh, Chris Wilson, who now makes wines at an urban winery, Gutter and Stars, in Cambridge. And he's... Hats off to Chris. Hats off to yes, Chris. Yes, and he's making great wines. I mean, they've, 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 they sold out, the back has sold out and, and has done phenomenally well. That was it. In... Yeah, and he's he's a he's a real evangelist for the uh, the, the Crouch Valley. So, do you think 
Um, we're seeing the, the map being drawn before our eyes at the moment. What are the, the areas to, to watch then? Obviously, Essex is one of them. I, I think that's that's absolutely right, David. It's one of the things that, that I hope you and I find so exciting um, that, that it's changing all the time in front of our eyes. Another typical example is at last... Kent is starting to get its skids on because Kent's always been well behind Sussex. Sussex seemed to be getting all the plaudits. Sussex seemed to be making all the special fine wines. And I kept thinking, but Kent, what's, Kent's got all that chalk. Kent's, Kent's warmer. Kent's drier. Why not Kent? Now, I've, I've been, I, I, I'm not really a conspiracy theorist, but I've always thought that the big champagne companies like LVMH and people have quietly bought you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of hectares of Kent, and they're just sitting on them until they need them because they could have bought them for nothing in the old days. I mean, I think the, the price of Kent farmland, because it's poor farmland, it's arable three or something, which is which is pretty much low down the scale of, of farmland prices, something like 1% of the cost it would have. A hectare in Kent cost about 1% what a hectare in a decent bottle of champagne would have cost. So, I mean, I wonder whether they have actually um, quietly uh, land banked some stuff and are just waiting till it suits them. But Kent finally got going with two tremendous, well, three flourishes, actually. Um, the first flourish was Chapel Down developing uh, Kitscoty. Uh, Kitscoty is, is um, just near Maidstone, where the, the, the Medway um, goes out towards the, towards the, um, the, the North Sea. And and it, there, there's a fabulous um, uh, line of of slopes from sort of Mepham running round to the west past Malling and those places, which uh, is being, let's say, exploited at the moment because I think that the uh, jury is out as to quite what's going on there. But round to the east, going o along towards Charing and Ashford. Um, that one has been uh, taken by uh, Chapel Down, and they've developed this Kitscoty, which is a, a, um, a vineyard of something like 600 hectares um, on, on that slope, and it's a fabulous slope. Um, it's relatively high. It's south-facing. It's, it's on those North Downs chalks. I was out there with the, the vineyard manager. Every time I said, well, this is the best vineyard I've seen, he said, I've got another one. And, he said, and we went and see that one. And I said, well, this is even better than the last one. He said, yeah, and I've got another one. I've <laughs> got about five or six of these vineyards there all being developed. And that's wow. 600 hectares of yeah. of. of of vineyard land that could be some of the best vineyard land in England, not 10 hectares, 600. And then you had Gusbourne um, being developed again. Now they're on clays. They're, they're, on, they're down by Romney Marsh. Um, their bottom vineyard is about three, three feet above sea level. It's down, it's down on the old Saxon shoreline. You literally go from the vineyard, um, squelching through the last couple of rows of, of vines at the bottom onto the, onto the Royal Military Canal and out onto the marsh. Um, and they have taken a different approach, but absolutely focused on saying, this is where we are, this, and we must try and make the, the, the best wine we can um, by, by, by a lot of very good winemaking down there. But um, they've also said, I know it's clay, but Appledore, the area they are near, near, down near the Romney Marsh, is particularly warm. And it's particularly sunny. It doesn't mean that Rye, two or three miles further away, is the same sunniness. It doesn't mean that Dungeness or, or is, is as sunny. Although I say that Dungeness, you can see you can see Dungeness from the the Gusbourne vineyards. Dungeness is England's only desert. Hang on. 
Does it mean no rain, doesn't it? Sure, it means no rain. If Gusborne's only a couple of miles away from that, they've got clay, hardly any rain. That sounds a bit like Essex to me. And then you've yeah. got what's happened um, with people like Simpsons. Now, again, I'm I'm sort of amazed that nothing has been done on those fabulous Kent Downs um, slopes running up from Dover and Folkestone. Uh, and there are also side valleys like the Orkham Valley and things which have no vines at the moment. I cannot believe they won't have vines. If you want chalk soils, these chalk soils, which literally run from, from Dover up to Canterbury, uh, uh, over and across to 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 uh, Charing and up to Maidstone, then you're into that whole Kits Coty world, and you then go past, you go all the way through South London. For all I know, places like Sydenham and Crystal Palace and all those other places are probably on the same soils. You certainly, every time you take a train anywhere out of South East London, you go through great great piles of of of, uh, of chalk and that that chalk runs all the way down through surrey denby's good example um down to uh, uh, hampshire and dorset and probably wilshire and of course actually what am i saying it, it runs down through there it also runs around the chilterns and the Chilterns are fabulous chalk as well. And if it runs the Chilterns, it also runs up through the East Midlands and it runs up through Lincolnshire. Norfolk has some of it. And South Yorkshire, they're talking about South Yorkshire and its, and its wine trail. Well, South Yorkshire has got Cretaceous chalk just the same as Kent has got Cretaceous chalk. It's a bit high and a bit cold at the moment, but it won't be in 10 or 20 years. And if no. you haven't got Cretaceous chalk, if you want Jurassic limestone, which is pretty much the same as you've got in places like Chablis um, and Sancerre, well, Middlesbrough's got a lot up there. All that, that there's a great swathe of Jurassic limestone running from Middlesbrough down to Weymouth. So that's a bit of a, a, a discussion. But what I'm seeing now is that someone like Simpsons um, have just started working um, uh, uh, in the Elam Valley near near Canterbury, and in four years they are making wines of absolutely individual, particular style. Uh, Kits Coty Chapel Down have been working on it for a bit longer, but the Chapel Down Kits Coty wines have an absolutely particular style. Gusborne have been at it for uh, ten years or so, and the Gusborne wines now have an absolute particular style and if we had to go into this wine t uh, blind wine tasting business um, I think that a, a good wine taster could easily say which was a Simpsons which was a Gusborne and which was a Chapel a Chapel Down not on the winemaking necessarily but on the inherent flavors of the fruit and that's Gosh. You could do the, the the same with bits of bits of Sussex, and Gosh. and you could definitely do the same with some of those um, some of those vineyards uh, in Hampshire. That that great swathe from Alsford running running a little bit up towards Alton and then down towards Portsmouth. Um, you know, wines like Exton Exton Park. You know, genuinely tasting different to anything around. There. And you go and see the vineyard, and and you know, there's the topsoil is about half a meter. And then it's 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 chalk down to China. It's incredible, isn't it? And it, it it's um and you 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 bubble with enthusiasm for it. But it's it's really nice in the book that you also feature individual producers, vineyards, and and people. And what's really striking is the determination, the pluck, the fortitude of these people, like uh, Bob Lindo down in Cornwall. Uh, or the the, uh, the team at Albury Estate doing biodynamic. There are people doing incredible things that are really difficult, aren't there? 
Yes, there are. Bob Lindo is a great example down there because I know the Camel Valley well. Uh, and by God, that when when that sheet of rain decides to come in from the North Cornish coast, it comes in. But he has got a bit of protection there. Uh, and and Bob has been, uh, again, he's a very wise fellow and has, has sourced his, his grapes extremely well and has made a, a, um, a, um, a business there, which a lot of other... Uh, English and Welsh wine producers would be would do well to look at because he re realised absolutely from the start that to make the business profitable he had to make tourism attractive, uh, and he's absolutely done that. He's made tourism the the, the absolute centre point of of, of Camel uh, and a highly successful operation and one of which Cornwall is just famous, um, and it, in fact it does Cornwall good to have Camel there. Uh, Camel is that successful that it's actually part of the Cornish story. Um, people, people like Albury in Surrey, deciding to go biodynamic. Um, people like uh, uh, Davenport, people like uh, Ben uh, Wargate at Tillingham, and what's it, Westwell um, over towards Charing in in Kent. These are the kind of people who who are absolutely going out on a limb and saying, I. I can do something special here, um, and I can um, do something like biodynamics or organics. Well, I've always thought biodynamics and organics in this country, honestly, it's too wet, there's too much mildew, there's too much rot. And I, I absolutely don't think that any English wine producer uh, should, should feel um, a, um, an ethical requirement uh, to go organic or to go biodynamic. It's absolutely to do with whether it's in their soul that they think they must do that. Um, I think being sustainable is something which a lot of people are taking very seriously. And, and there are many ways to be sustainable without being organic or, or biodynamic. But when you see the people who do do it, and when you talk to them, and when you realise that the only way to do this is by a massive commitment of time and emotion and, 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 and intellect, uh, it's very, very impressive. And and it's it's in... It's in tune with the times, and I think that the English wine producers are increasingly in tune with the times. Talking of being in tune with the times, it's not that long ago you received an OBE. Um, tell me, I, I remember on, on, in the Twitter sphere that day that it was just so uplifting seeing people uh, sincerely congratulating you, genuinely thrilled for you. Um, just finally, uh, tell us what that actually meant uh, getting uh, that honour. I was utterly thrilled. Uh, I, it was complete surprise. I'd never intended to get any sort of honour ever. Um, I'm a populist by nature, so um, I hadn't done anything to please the establishment. In, I, I, in 30 years of television and writing, I've, I've never tried to please the establishment. Uh, I've displeased them far more often than pleased them. <laughs> People still purse their lips at some of the things that I do and say to this day. Um, and when I came home and I saw this letter on the stairs and I opened it, I, I have to say I felt an absolute rush of excitement, but also a rush of pride um, that I didn't know was there. And I thought, why have I got this? And it said for broadcasting and for, for writing. And I just thought, so maybe someone has noticed that I've tried to democratise this funny old world of wine of ours. I've tried to take it 
to the people. I've tried to say wine is for everybody. Wine, you know, in the old days, I used to have people come up to me and say, oh, wine's not for the likes of us. And I was saying, yes, wine is for the likes of you. And you'd go to somewhere like Australia and you'd, you'd, you'd go down to bars and you'd be drinking with wharfies and stevedores and porters and they'd all be talking about wine and the taxi driver would be talking about wine and when I was used to be an actor in Australia the stagehands would be talking about wine I said it is for you it is for you all it's it's the case that the class system in England had has had had kept wine kept good wine to itself um, and I was just saying good wine doesn't have to have long names good wine doesn't have to be made by people who've been doing it for 10 generations in France or Italy or Germany good wine can just have a simple name like Chardonnay on and a simple name like Smith on and 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 you and it, and it will taste of something which gives you pleasure and and Gilly Goulden and I used to beat the drum week by week and we did it by again infuriating the establishment by the way we talked about wine and they used to absolutely hate it and to this day they will go on about Gilly Goulden and me to this day about how we we've cheapened wine and I think but your wine business is probably still in business because of the cheapening of wine that Gilly Goulden and I did so if it was for that kind of just getting getting people to understand that wine is a great pleasure, not the great pleasure, a great pleasure, along with music and the, the sunshine and the, and, the, and the breeze in springtime and the way that the trees grow and the way that, I don't know, books you read and the clothes you wear, just a pleasure. Um, and it's a pleasure which was being denied to this country and I think now this country largely takes for granted. Well, it's I really discovered wine uh, through you, through what you did on the telly. Also, my first book about wine was actually uh, your book, too. So it's a, a huge um, pleasure uh, to be chatting to you. I, I could chat to you all day, but you uh, don't have the time for that. And, and neither do our listeners. But it's a, a great pleasure to uh, chat to you. And, and the book English Wine is, is really a fantastic read as well. So, Oz, thank you very much indeed for being on The Drinking Hour. Thank you, David. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time for our first selection of medal-winning wines, and we're going to pick up where Oz left off, the United Kingdom, with three gold medal winners from the bumper crop at this year's awards. I think there were eight gold medals, a record, the best ever performance by the UK. First of all, Oz was talking about that Nightimber effect. It was the 1992 vintage that won Nightimber its first ever gold medal at the IWSC. So here's an obvious place to start. Nightimber Blanc de Blanc, Brute 2013, won gold with 97 points. Pretty incredible score. I was on the judging panel for this one. It was an extraordinary flight of delicious vintage sparkling wines. Our tasting note says, an elegant, complex and giving nose in a classic Blanc de Blanc style. The mousse is fine, the palate rich, yet vinous, with tantalising biscuity and lemon shortbread characters and zesty lemon acidity. Complex, harmonious, beautifully balanced and very long. Bravo, we said. Get your hands on that if you can. Next, a gold medal for Whiston Estate for its Cuvée Brut 2015. It's owned by the Goring family, who've been local Sussex landowners for 275 years. The vineyards were only planted in 2006. 
The wines are made by the legend that is Dermot Sugru, an Irishman. I was on the panel for this one as well, and we said a slight rose gold tint in the glass with an orchard fruit, bruised apple and honeycomb character on the nose. Beautifully floral and delicate berries. It's textured and layered with tiny bubbles dancing on the palate. Super clean, long and complex. And it's off to Dorset for our third gold medal winner, English Oak Vineyards Engelman Brute 2014. Husband and wife team Andrew and Sarah took their combined experience of marketing and horticulture and after doing a viticulture degree at Plumpton College in Sussex, they bought their own vineyard. Dermot Segru, once again, is the winemaker here. Told you he's a legend. We said lingering fresh unwaxed lemons with summer blossom, lifted floral notes. Think charming English country garden on the nose. Salted chocolate bars oozing with citrus on the palate, then layers and layers of texture and excitement. Absolutely seamless. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. If, like me, you have a passion for gin, then you could say our next guest is living the dream. He took his love for gin to the next level, founding a distillery with his wife and, and business partner. William Lowe, co-founder of Cambridge Distillery, was the first master distiller to also become a master of wine. And uh, he joins us now from Cambridge. Uh, Will, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Thank you for having me. Let's start with that MW bit. It's a notoriously difficult qualification to achieve. And you had already made your name as a master distiller when you went through the MW process. So why did you want to pursue master of wine as well? <laughs> um, yes, that's a, that's a commonly asked question and I think it's a fair one. Um, uh, I think to begin with, uh, I'd be lying if I didn't admit that some of it was, uh, some of the motivation came from the fact that neither I nor anybody else really thought I would be able to do it. And there is a deliberately contrary part of my personality that enjoys challenges like that. Uh, and then thereafter, with the more sort of um, macro lens on it, it was my belief that I could improve myself. Uh, I could improve myself both as a, as a taster, as a producer, as, as a judge, uh, as uh, someone uh, who would be in a position that was able to appraise both wines and spirits uh, more accurately, more fairly and, and with, with greater knowledge if I were to add to my my data set as it were so um, it was my assumption uh, my feeling that by studying wine I would become better at spirits almost vicariously and indeed that's what I studied uh, for the final dissertation my, my research project was looking at whether indeed that was the case and there isn't an equivalent master of spirits uh, of course there is master distiller but that's a, a separate thing do you think perhaps there should be a, a master of spirits like there's a master of wine. I, I do. Um, and I also sadly think that there can't be, um, uh, at least not within, uh, within a decade from now. I just don't think it would be possible. And I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Uh, the master of wine really is uh, a, a unique um, qualification and indeed uh, institution. And I think the fact that it developed when it did uh, enabled it to become what it did become. Um, and I, I think to, to clarify that a little, uh, if we look at it as being uh, a need, 
Uh, I think it was a, a direct requirement at the time within the trade uh, for people to demonstrate a level of qualification that they simply weren't able to demonstrate through other means other than uh, experience and a strong CV. Uh, and the MW allowed uh, an opportunity for people to get that sort of seal of approval that not only had they uh, put in the time, but they'd also gone to the depth and breadth required to amass the knowledge uh, to pass that qualification. Now, I think if we fast forward that to, to the current climate into the, the 2020s and, and beyond, uh, the world of spirits is and has for a long time been very much brand dominated. Um, it operates far more like an FMCG channel than most of the wine industry does. Uh, different skills are considered more relevant and more important often by, uh, by prospective employers. Uh, and it's a very politicised and commercial landscape as well. So I think um, the, uh, the, the task required to get not only the educational um, rigour that would be required for that qualification, but also to depoliticise it, um, given that it would clearly need a lot of funding to, to get to that position. Uh, I think it's not an impossible task, but certainly, certainly a very challenging one. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd never thought of it in that way, actually. So goodness knows how you managed to do the work that's required, which is you know, notoriously vast, uh, to get the MW whilst you were also establishing uh, Cambridge Distillery uh, with uh, your business partner and, and wife, Lucy, of course, as well. Um, tell us about the distillery and what you're seeking to achieve with it and what you've achieved already, actually. Uh, yes, well, uh, the distillery was a, a hobby. It was a hobby um, back in the, the 2000s that became a part-time business in the early 2010s and then became a full-time business and uh, has grown uh, from there in, in some significant way. Um, what we were doing when we started the distillery was really quite simple, actually. Uh, as you know, I was teaching spirits at the time and there were an awful lot of times that I would want to be able to show students various implications of distillations that were run in sub-optimal conditions. Um, but it's actually very difficult to do that in a classroom scenario because distillations that go wrong don't often arrive on shelves for people to purchase. Uh, although, sad to say, that's not necessarily the case now. Um, but um, <laughs> uh, I created a sort of test distillery literally to make mistakes on so that I could show students such as yourself indeed what happens if you run a still too fast too slow too hot too cold etc etc and um, and then it was whilst I was doing that that I sort of adapted that um, uh, the, the, the kit that we had already set up and used it for production purposes and started making things uh, for, for, for friends and family and then that hobby and interest really started to grow in some significant way. And I made an observation whilst I was teaching. Uh, it was really quite a simple one. You, you will have made the same thing. Whilst you're going through the WSET courses, uh, we are encouraged to use a, a quality statement that will code any product, be it a wine spirit, uh, as um, a poor, acceptable, good, very good or outstanding. Uh, and I noticed over the years that gins were always good or very good. And there literally weren't any that were outstanding. And I thought that was really peculiar. <laughs> uh, so yeah. why is outstanding always in um, whiskies and cognacs? Uh, th there's nothing in this grid that says that the presence of oak uh, or lack thereof should be a gateway to, the, uh, to, to a quality status. Um, 
And so I drilled down a little bit on that and, you know, fundamentally realised that the reason that um, there were no gins that, that were doing that is that literally nobody was making the best gin they could make. Uh, and by that, what I mean is, obviously, everyone was trying their best, but they were trying their best within a commercial environment. And uh, the best decision that, uh, that a producer can make within their remit of being on the shelf for £30 is very different from what's the best decision can you make. Uh, so we had a look and thought, well, what, what does happen if at every turn you say, well, what would give the best result, not what would give the best result and be affordable? Uh, and the result, frankly, to the answer to that question, uh, is if you make the best decision at every turn instead of the cheapest, then um, you can access this, uh, this realm of quality that was previously out of touch to gin. Uh, and in order to get there, you pretty much reinvent the, the gin-making process. Uh, so wow. almost everything that we do uh, is, um, is very unusual, if not unique. So you started off sort of deliberately making mistakes, in a sense, to demonstrate what a mistake tasted like or smelt like, and, and you end up um, making um, something that you think is as close to perfection as you can get. Yeah, um, certainly perfection is, um, is I, I think, is a, is a goal. Um, that is, um, it, it's a harsh mistress, and I do spend my life um, searching through those diminishing returns to get as close to it as we possibly can. Um, but certainly the, the, there was a step up that, that was clear that could be made, uh, and so we made it. And um, the, the important thing here, I think, was, was that um, commercially none of what we were doing made sense, not at all. Uh, I, uh, when I even told people what I was making, sort of friends and family, and, uh, and indeed uh, industry contacts, I was, the most common response was that people would laugh at me. <laughs> and they'd say, well, you know, there's already gin there. Well, you can go and buy it. It costs 30 quid. You've got a job. Just go and get it. <laughs> and I was saying, no, I'm, I'm certain that, that you know, there's, uh, there's a much better way. And actually, it wasn't long at all before those friends and, the, and family and then friends of the friends of family were buying their gins from what we were making rather than from the supermarkets and, uh, and other outlets. And so we realised that actually, um, despite the, uh, the strange looks and raised eyebrows and sometimes outright uh, ridicule that we were facing, uh, that actually it was, um, it was gathering a pace. And so um, my wife and I started uh, the, the distillery as a commercial uh, in a commercial guise in 2012. And at that point, it was Lucy who was the, the full-timer. Um, I was still teaching and so I was distilling part-time and Lucy was running the company. Uh, and we realised soon that this was something that actually there was an appetite for out there. And within a year, uh, the both of us had gone on full time. And uh, if I sort of fast forward and compress the next 10 years into, into 30 seconds, uh, we've gone from uh, being considered very unusual, sort of renegade producers, as it were, um, and we were making in, entirely in the smallest distillery in the United Kingdom, which was in the sitting room of our house in Cambridge. Uh, and from, from that point, uh, as I speak to you now, we've got over 40 employees. We're producing across three sites. We've been recognised three consecutive times as making the most innovative spirits in the world. Um, we've built a completely unparalleled portfolio uh, of nine permanent SKUs plus a seasonal SKU every single one of which has won at least a gold medal at international competition at international level for for quality uh, so it's, uh, it's this is not an i told you so moment but it is a follow your instincts follow your heart moment i think 
Yeah, well, that's uh, the kind of story you hear when you read about someone like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or one of these sort of t titans of technology, uh, to be honest. It's, it's a similar story of, of, of seeking to, to kind of reinvent the way things are, are, are thought about. So uh, it does uh, certainly ring true. Um, you referenced the WSET in your teaching there. For those listening, uh, you kind of made reference to it there. You actually taught me about distillation about five years ago as part of what was then the wine and spirits diploma at the WSET and you were uh, very good at that too. Uh, so talking about the, the products you uh, you make and, and the innovation, you do some very, you know, frankly, unusual things. Um, ants springs to mind. Um, is, yeah. that, is the ant gin the most unusual one you've done? It's the most uh, unusual ingredient that we have used, certainly. Um, and it's a funny thing. I think we're, we've almost got two parallel questions going on there. So um, the, around the, the innovation and the, and the unusual things we do, uh, the rationale for our innovation, and, and we've won awards for it, which I, I always um, I'm flattered by, but, but slightly tickled by, because we've never actually tried to be innovators in terms of uh, product and process. Uh, what we've tried to do is just make better liquid. And sometimes you can make better liquid just by tweaking processes that already exist. Um, but then inevitably you'll get to the, to the ceiling of what that process is capable of. And at that point we innovate. So we do have systems that we use that nobody else uses or uh, systems that we use that are uh, very rare in the, in the wider world of spirits production. Uh, but we're never doing that to be different or to be innovative. We're just trying to do it to be better, frankly, to, to make better spirits. So that's one side of the, the innovation line. And then uh, the other is around some of the products themselves. And, and yes, ants is definitely one of the more unusual things that we've done. Um, we made a, a product called Anti-Gin, uh, and that was the result of a collaboration between us and um, uh, Nordic Food Lab. Uh, which is um, a, a sort of not-for-profit uh, laboratory that studies the future of food, really, but with this underlying theme of deliciousness. Uh, and we were contacted by a chap there called Benedict Reed, who has since moved to Edinburgh. And if you can track him down and uh, ever get the chance to eat anything that he has created, then I, I would encourage you to do so. He's wonderful. Um, and he's got one of these beautifully creative minds that puts simple things together and comes out with very complex um, uh, answers. But uh, two such simple things were one observation that all gins have a citrus note uh, and the other that some ants taste like citrus. Uh, so oh. the rest, as they say. So. Um, so uh, this was this was news to me. So uh, he phoned me up and said, okay, "Would it be possible to, to use ants through distillation?" And uh, it wasn't a question that I had prepared for. <laughs> uh, so I did have to look into it. But when I looked into it, um, well, I mean, the answer is, is emphatically yes. Um, you know, the, uh, the the ants that we're using, Formica rufa, um, they. In fact, you may have heard of formic acid. Formic acid actually gets its name because it comes from ants, which are called oh. formica rufa. Okay. Uh, and it does have this um, sort of citrus spectrum uh, flavour to it. Uh, and of endless fascination to me, um, you, you can... Almost everything you can say about wine and grapes, you can say about flavour and ants as well. So you can get different species of ants from the same place and they'll taste different. But you can also take the same species of ant uh, and, and put them in a different terroir and they'll taste different again, uh, which I just think is absolutely fascinating. Um, but the, the ants that we were using in this case, uh, um, the, the redwood ant, have a flavour which is um, unique 
to them. Um, but the closest that I could get to it using sort of widely used vocabulary would be almost a sort of oxidative lemongrass uh, sort of citrus note. It's not exactly that. And if it was, I would just use lemongrass because lemongrass doesn't run away from you when you try and collect it and doesn't bite you when you've caught it. So uh, <laughs> it is a slightly different thing. Uh, but it does have this, um, this incredible flavour. Um, and so once we had managed to isolate that flavour, the next step was to, uh, to give this whole thing really a sense of place and authenticity. So we gathered all of the rest of the botanicals for the gin from within the ecosystem that the ants had come from. Uh, which led us to using things like um, Alexander seed and wood avens and stinging nettles, things that had never been used in gin before, um, and created a gin that has this really distinctive, earthy, um, sort of granular texture to it, which was a wonderful project in of itself. But I think it's important to note it, it wasn't um, an end to itself. So it was, um, it was to support an event called Pestival, and Pestival, despite, uh, or rather, as well as having the most magnificent name, uh, was an event um, that was designed to showcase the irrefutable fact that the way that we as a species are consuming and eating uh, from the planet is unsustainable, and that insects can and should be considered as a viable source of food and flavour. Uh, yeah. So really that's what the conversation was highlighting. And so uh, in order to sort of preempt some of the questions that, that we are often get asked, um, isn't it cruel to be using ants, couldn't you use something else, etc. Um, my stance is no, it, it's not cruel to ants for the simple reason that actually it's not possible to be cruel to an insect. They have no concept of pain nor suffering. So you, you can't torture an insect. You're anthropomorphizing if you think that you are. Uh, so that would be the first thing. Uh, and secondly, mm -hmm. actually look at what this project has come from. Um, anyone squeamish about eating ants, anyone who balks at the idea of eating insects, uh, really I would encourage you to, to examine that worldview because, I mean, it's a, it's a statement of fact that 70% of the humans on this planet eat insects routinely as part of their diet. So if you think it's weird, uh, then actually you're the weird one. Uh, and that's, uh, that's an observation that I'm taking directly from Miles Irving, who's a forager that, that worked with us on, on this project. Um, insects can and should be considered part of our diet. They are yeah. infinitely but um, less damaging to the environment and I think it's a squeamishness that we should all be able to get over relatively easily. Well it chimes with uh, much of the programming that we have uh, here on, on Food FM around uh, kind of future food and uh, I think by the way I, I would also bite you if I saw you coming uh, for fear I might uh, end up in your distillation process but um, you use um, a lot of seasonal ingredients you put a real focus on that, uh, which yes. kind of chimes with what you were just talking about with the stinging nettles and the like. Um, I absolutely um, adore your, I think, your latest product, although you have a, a throughput that suggests there might have been something since, but Three Seasons was just yes. the most fantastic uh, gin. Um, incredibly um, vivid kind of verbena, citrus character there, but also this, this wonderful smoothness. So um, tell us about... Um, that particular product and, and why you sought to create that? Well, so our, our seasonal uh, obsession is, is very, very much, very closely related to my, um, my study of wine. And uh, as you know, all of the great wines, without exception, are those which carry a sense of place. 
and their ability to convey that sense of time and place is something that I thought was uh, sorely missing from the gin industry. Not necessarily from spirits, you know, um, it's an integral part of whiskey. Um, without it, cognac literally doesn't exist. So um, provenance it, uh, is something that, that I hold dear. And so we set out to create a, a gin that actually had provenance. Um, now, you might be thinking there's, there's lots of local gins, uh, and there are, but all of them use uh, pretty much a cookie-cutter recipe that's imported from all over the world. So uh, almost every gin you ever look at will have juniper, coriander, angelica, licorice, orris, citrus. None of those, there isn't a single place in the world where all six of those things grow. So by mm. definition, these are sort of patchwork together. Uh, and I thought that we were missing an opportunity to, to show provenance in a glass through gin. Um, and so we started making seasonal gins uh, almost a decade ago now. Um, but then the same uh, problems happen with vintages as they do with our seasonal gins. So when we were making them uh, on a sort of vintage basis, they just didn't last very long. People would buy them and drink them and then they are gone. So um, we had a problem there with um, maintaining uh, availability. And so the idea of three seasons is it's almost like our non-vintage seasonal, if you will. Uh, and so I picked three flavour notes that really exemplify the seasons that we pick through here in Cambridge. And we have three seasons, hence the name. Uh, so really those are spring, summer and autumn. And we use lemon verbena for the spring, rose petal for the summer and blackcurrant leaf for the autumn. Um, and then once I identified those, um, as you've correctly identified earlier on, I do like making a challenge for myself. Um, I thought that it made perfect sense that this liquid should taste chronologically too. Uh, so I wanted it to be like sipping through the seasons so that the immediate flavour would be the lemon verbena, a relatively simple start point because generally when you have a whole host of flavours uh, arranged uh, side by side, citrus will be the first out, out of the gate, it will be the first one that you, uh, that you experience. Uh, but thereafter there was a layering involved and I wanted to make sure that as soon as that citrus starts to fade it would be the rose that would literally bloom on the palate. Uh, and then I needed to layer further to ensure that the blackcurrant leaf was coming through as a, uh, as a back note uh, in, in really delivering the length of the gin. And I've done this by, it was a lot of work went into it, studying the adaptive nature of complexity during length on the palate. Um, if that sounds like a mouthful, it, it is. Um, yeah. And in fact, I'm uh, so inspired by the study of that and, and what came out of the, the back end of the, the Master of Wine uh, that this has led me on to my next academic venture, uh, which is that in October, I'll be starting a, a PhD uh, at the, in the Chemical Engineering and Biotechnology Department of Cambridge University. Uh, and my PhD is literally studying the intrinsic properties of quality in wines and spirits. Right. Well, you are officially mad then. I did wonder, but I think, I think you must be. Certainly a glutton for punishment anyway. Um, the, the three seasons, by the way, if anyone listening hasn't tried it, I, I, I can heartily recommend it. And my partner on tasting it, and we, I'm embarrassed to say we, we drink quite a lot of gin. Um, we had a martini, as recommended, first of all, with it. Uh, subsequently had it with tonic. Described it as the best gin he has ever tasted. So that is uh, praise indeed, as I say, because we've, um, we've, you know, we've been fortunate to taste quite a lot. So here's a question. Um, what makes a good gin? It is, oh, the, the simple questions. So um, actually the first way I'll answer that is to ask you how long you've got. 
Uh, not that long. Okay, I do. Right. <laughs> um, ah. No. Um, so, what makes a good gin? I think first of all, and this sounds so so simple, but it's so important. It's got to be free from faults. And I've done so much judging where so many of the the products on the table are just outright faulty. If a gin goes cloudy, it's not being distilled properly. It's nothing to do with chill filtration. Uh, these are things that can and should be avoided. Um, it should have juniper as the dominant note. That's what gin is. And I don't mind people making banana spirits instead, but you should call it that, not call it gin. So first of all, let's make sure that it actually is gin. That really shouldn't be difficult. Um, thereafter, I believe the things that, that work um, in uh, a positive angle towards gin production uh, are not trying to be um, overly complex in terms of one's recipe. Uh, if you can remove an ingredient and not notice, then it had no place in being there in the first place. Uh, so I use a reductive blending system for that uh, exact purpose. You're not kidding yourself that flavors are having an impact if, if they're not. Uh, and then I think really what you want uh, a gin to do is have an overriding sense of freshness and vibrancy. So it's balancing that earthy, piney, driven note with the juniper of that fresh, light um, uh, vibrancy that, that we get from citrus. Uh, and then all of the rest of the complexity that one can aspire to needs to be carefully considered because too much complexity is just a mess. Uh, and I think there is definitely an apex point on the graph of complexity uh, that one should be aiming for. That's uh, fascinating, a, a really good answer as I expected. And I said at the beginning, you're living the dream, but uh, what a lot of uh, hard work has gone into to living that dream. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating uh, chatting to you, uh, Will. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Drinking Hour. That's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. There's just time for our final selection of medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And let's start with a gin from Portugal that won a silver medal in 2020. Destilaria Black Pig Alentejo Montado Alentejano Gin, which is made from local botanicals in Alentejo. The judges said notes of almonds, marzipan and walnuts on the nose with a confectionery hint. Long and creamy, smooth on the palate with a lingering aftertaste of sheer beauty. Next, staying in Portugal but heading out into the Atlantic Ocean, a Madeira. Blandi's Coleta Sir Charles 2008 won a silver, 94 points, just one point shy of a gold medal, tantalisingly. Family owned for seven generations, Blandi's was founded in 1811. People don't always realise that Madeira is already fined, so there's no need for that pesky decanting. You can take it straight from the bottle. The judges said citrusy aromas combine with orange and floral characters, supremely fresh, juicy palate that supports the dried apricot and lemon fruit. Lovely body with a mineral kick to the finish. Madeira is just such a wonderful thing and it's so underrated, I think. Great to see it getting a medal. Finally, a delicious wine from Tokai in Hungary. Mad One 2018, a gold medal winner with 96 points. The judges said, beautiful purity and minerality shine as this wine builds up in power in the mouth. 
melon, pineapple, lemon, herbs and smoke all appear on the creamy palate. It finishes with a lovely salty, nutty tang. Mad is actually the village and Tokai, the region, is known for its luscious sweet wines, of course, but dry ferment is equally delightful, as you may recall from our chat with uh, Freddie Bulmer from the Wine Society, uh, talking Eastern Europe a couple of weeks back. And that's it for this week's Drinking Hour. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Do join me again next time. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter, or you can follow me, Mr. Venusaurus, on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes and you enjoyed it, then do please think about giving us a, a five-star rating because it really helps. But for now, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.